What's up, everybody? Pastor Matt here. Thank you so much for checking into the podcast of Gospel Fellowship PCA. Hey, listen, what if I told you that there is a solid, biblical, doctrinally faithful, reformed church on a beautiful campus just a stone's throw north of Pittsburgh? Yeah, we don't have a Starbucks in the lobby. Sorry about that. We don't have a fog machine. We don't have an American Idol stage with laser lights shooting all around. But we do have the sweetest, kindest people in the world. We sing the Psalms and classic hymns of the faith. We preach the Bible chapter by chapter. We believe the whole thing's true. We love Jesus. We're on a mission to share the good news of the gospel with the world. Would you be interested in a church like that? Well, come check us out, Gospel Fellowship PCA in Valencia, Pennsylvania. Please feel free to visit our website at gospelfellowshippca.org and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Gospel Fellowship Presbyterian Church. All right, thank you so much. Here's today's message. Amen. Church, let's grab our Bibles. We're in the Gospel of Matthew today. We're taking a quick break from our series in First Thessalonians, and we're going to look at the the account of the birth of Christ. We'll talk more of this on Christmas Eve coming up later this week, but will you turn your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1? Should be fairly easy to locate. It's the first book in the first chapter of the New Testament. When you find that, let's go ahead and stand up together as the believing church. We recognize here at Gospel Fellowship, as all Christians do, that God's Word is holy and infallible and inerrant, the very inspired, authoritative Word of the only true and living God. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Listen now to the word of your king. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quoting Isaiah here, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, you stay in Matthew, uh, Matthew 1, but let me read to you a portion of Revelation. Revelation has a spiritualized vision of the birth of Christ and uh, Revelation, the Apocalypse, chapter 12. Just listen to this. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Can you picture this? With seven heads and seven horns, and on his head seven diadems, in other words, seven crowns. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. A vivid spiritual vision of the birth of Christ. Uh, we may think of the woman with a crown and the stars on her head as being 
Israel and the red dragon, of course, symbolizes Satan, who, by the way, hates the story of the birth of Christ. We love it. We treasure the story, but Satan hates the story. He always has. There's a pretty fairly obvious reason that Satan hates the story of the virgin birth of Christ because the virgin birth tells us of the natures of Christ and the names of Christ. And Satan, who is the enemy of your soul and mine, he hates the natures of Christ and he hates the names of Christ. And so throughout all of history, all of church history at least, this doctrine that we believe as Christians and we're about to preach about right now, the doctrine of the virgin birth has been opposed and it has been hated and it has been despised by the red dragon. He sits waiting to devour the Christ child. And that he tried to do in the story of Herod who killed all of the children of Bethlehem. You remember this, of course. It's right there in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 2. Herod kills the children of Bethlehem, essentially acting out the part of the red dragon who would try to destroy the Christ child if he was able. Unfortunately, or fortunately, we should say, Herod was unable to do so and the red dragon went to bed hungry. And throughout church history, again and again, we see the doctrine of the virgin birth attacked. In the second century, there was a lie told by a a Greek philosopher named Celsus who contrived a lie with no historical or factual backing that Mary was actually conceived of uh, through a Roman soldier named Panthera. It was a lie. Had no historical foundation whatsoever, but he told the lie and it was repeated over and over again. In the Middle Ages, as we're going to talk about here in just a few moments, uh, arose uh, an exaltation of Mary herself. We have to be careful with that. We, we love Mary. We honor Mary in the sense that we, that we respect the faithful believers down through the ages, but we certainly do not place Mary next to Christ as though she were to be esteemed and worshipped as He is. And again, the red dragon made his attempt to destroy the doctrine of the virgin birth by exalting uh, Mary in the modern ages, of course, of the rise of, of progressive liberalism, the liberalism versus fundamentalism debate. Again, the virgin birth was attacked the liberals of the early 20th century were willing to use the words of orthodox language, but they never meant it. In fact, they denied, they denied any supernatural realities pertaining to this story. And so what we see again and again is that the red dragon hates what we believe. And he would seek to destroy it if he was, un, if he was able, but he is fortunately unable to do so. Now, I do want to mention this just by way of preface this morning, that we... Look, we're in danger this morning with the preaching of this text, and I'll tell you why. A particular danger around Christmas and Easter, because, because we know the story. We've known it since we were children. We act out the story in pageants. We have the nativity story on our Christmas cards. We see it on our Christmas specials. We know this story. And the, the danger and the difficulty both for you and for me, it's a danger for me too as a preacher because I could just turn to last Christmas' sermons and just preach it again if I wanted to. But that's the danger of, of too quickly glossing over these kinds of texts, just assuming we know it. We already know it. We've got the angel, the Gabriel, and Joseph, and Mary, and the manger. I know the whole story. And whenever we think we know, we unfortunately block out our own ability to engage in what the story actually teaches. And so I'm going to try my best not to, to phone it in this morning. And I don't want you to phone it in either. Just because we know the story and we know the details. 
So I'm up here, I'm trying to present the story as freshly as I can without any innovations whatsoever. All innovations are dangerous. We're not gonna innovate. We're just gonna preach what's here and what we have right here in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke as well is we have the most beautiful and simple and sublime of stories. It's the story of your redemption and mine, Christian. And Matthew starts off the story of the telling of the birth of Christ in chapter 1 with a long genealogy. That's an important genealogy. We're not going to read it this morning, but it's there in your Bible. And it tells a story, a long, faithful story of God's covenant promises to His people. To men like Abraham and men like David and uh, women like Ruth and others in the story. Some of them are great sinners, no doubt. Abraham and David in particular, we can fault them, we can fault them for some of the things that they did, but God is faithful, and Matthew presents here in Matthew chapter 1, 14 generations, and then 14 more, and 14 more, and this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but it is a telling of the story of redemption, it's all pointing towards what we're about to see today, it's going to culminate in the birth of Christ. And so you might think of this telling of the story as like a, like a spotlight that lights up a stage and all of the cast of characters throughout the Old Testament are presented in Matthew chapter 1, but then the spotlight begins to coalesce on two characters, Mary and Joseph, and you know that full well. And of those two, one is going to be used as the, the, the medium, we might say, the mechanism by which God is going to bring His Son, our Savior, the Christ, into the world through this miraculous, yes, no doubt about that, virginal, absolutely virginal conception by way of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to do today in Matthew chapter 1 is we are going to look at two things. First, the natures of Christ, plural. It's not an accident. I didn't stutter. We're going to look at the natures, plural, of Christ. And then secondly, time permitting, we're going to look at the names of Christ, both of which, remember, the red dragon hates. And so let's start off this morning with the natures, plural, of Christ. I hope you have your Bible open. We're in Matthew chapter 1. Let's look at verse 18. We're going to see them both. Both natures are going to be right here in the nativity scene. In the virgin birth story, we see the two natures of Christ. Look at them in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? With child, there's his human nature from the Holy Spirit, his divine nature. Now all Christians confess this truth. That Jesus Christ is one person in two natures. Count them. One, two. The human nature and the divine nature. We've already confessed this one time together this morning in our liturgy. We used a piece of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, number 21. Look at this. It says, The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was and continueth to be God and man. There they are, the two natures. In two distinct natures and one person forever. So here's the formula that all Christians believe. One person, two natures. And believe it or not, this is one thing that all Christians agree on. Thank goodness, there's something at least. 
Because we can disagree on baptism, and we can disagree on worship, and we can disagree on liturgy, and we can disagree on how many holidays there ought to be, and we can disagree on how church governments ought to be run, and what is the most efficient way to do presbytery meetings. We can argue about all kinds of things. But here's one thing that all Christians believe. Jesus Christ is one person in two natures. No wonder Satan hates this doctrine. It unites us all. Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and Catholics and Orthodox, we all confess this. And if you don't, it's a good sign that you're in a cult. There it is. Now let's delve in, first of all, to the human nature of Jesus. Let's spend some time here. Notice that Mary is said to be found with child. What was inside of her? Well, a child, of course. And as to his human nature, we might say that Mary was the passive agent in the conception of Jesus. She did nothing wrong. The text makes that abundantly clear. This is a virginal conception. There is no sin here on her part. Joseph too, though he maybe reacts a little bit understandably so, yet he is portrayed here as a man of integrity and honor. We ought to emulate him and Mary. But Mary is the passive agent here. She does nothing to bring about this conception. In fact, she wouldn't have even known about it had it would not been for the angel Gabriel who announced it to her in Luke's gospel. When we read Luke, it's pretty clear that the announcement comes before the conception, not the other way around. The angel doesn't come and say, hey, you're already pregnant. He says, you're about to be. And so Mary is entirely passive in this scenario, and yet what is conceived within her, we have to confess with all true Christians, is a human being, a child. Behold, you will conceive, says the scriptures. And so what does that mean? It means a fertilized egg in her uterus. Uh, it means 23 pairs of chromosomes for a total of 46. It means this child had human DNA. You ever think about that? They didn't even know about DNA in those days. But if we had a blood cell of Jesus and put it in a microscope, that's what we would see. We would see human DNA. We would see a child who is literally connected to Mary with an umbilical cord. That's amazing to me. I'm astounded by that. The Christ of God was supported by the food and the oxygen that Mary's body provided for him. We belabor this point. I'm belaboring this point because I don't want you to deny the true humanity of Christ. She gave birth, it says in 125. And when she gave birth, presumably it was ordinary, at least in the sense that her water broke. There was pain. There was labor. There was the issuing forth of blood and fluids as all live birth transpires. There was an umbilical cord that needed to be cut. There was a placenta that needed to follow after. In this sense, at least, it's absolutely ordinary, but hold for just a moment. Because as I've already told you this morning, the red dragon hates the story of the virgin birth, doesn't he? And so what does he do? Well, he does what he's always done, which is to lie and to distort and to, to deceive. Now, I'm going to take a side road here. I need you to follow me on this. This is important. A little church history here. No sooner... Uh, did the gospel come into, into fruition with the birth of Christ, but the virgin birth was attacked? It was attacked in a number of ways. We already saw that Herod tried to kill the Christ child in Bethlehem, but it was also attacked philosophically. Now, there was a group called the Gnostics, a heretical cult, 
which had a mix of all kinds of different worldviews and different beliefs. Uh, they absorbed some of Christianity. They absorbed some of Judaism. They absorbed some of the dualism of Greek philosophy. And the Gnostics, you have to understand, they were dualists. And what does that mean? It means that they thought that the spirit is good and all matter is bad. Right? All physical reality, physical matter is bad. And so the Gnostics, they wrote books that seemed to be Christian-like. They even used a lot of Christian terms. We have books like the Odes of Solomon. We have books like the Ascension of Isaiah. Now, that's problematic because Solomon's been dead for several hundred years. Isaiah's been dead for several hundred years. These books were not written by the authors whose names they take. Okay? These were Gnostic imitation uh, documents. And what did they say? They actually taught the virgin birth, but here's what they didn't do. They denied, they denied that Christ was actually born in a normal manner through the birth canal. Let the reader understand. They denied that. And so the Christians, well, some of the early Christians, they defended they defended this. They defended this against the Gnostics, Jerome and Gregory and Ambrose and others. And they began to argue for the perpetual virginity of Mary, that she was always a virgin. In order to clarify, perhaps they went too far. Look back at Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. But Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son. In other words, after that, he married her and they had a son they resumed a normal marital relationship. But in going too far to defend against the Gnostics, the Christians went too far and they argued for the perpetual virginity of Mary, which is not a biblical doctrine. The Bible says Jesus had brothers and sisters. Okay? It says here in verse 25 that, that Joseph and Mary had a normal marital relationship, and yet, and yet, and yet to fight back against the, the Gnostic heresies pushed it too far. And so what happened then is, is that this, this doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary began to be absorbed into official church teaching. And then, and this is where it really gets weird, official church teaching also accepted the Gnostic version of the story in which Jesus was not born through the birth canal, but rather was, to use, I don't have any other word for this, transported from her, from her womb into, into to birth. How in the world does that happen? I have no idea. Um, some of the official formulations describe this as light passing through glass. And this became official doctrine under Pope St. Martin in 649 AD at the First Lateran Council. And the problem with this is that we don't need to invent other miracles to teach this doctrine. We do not need to invent a miracle that the Bible doesn't teach us. Jesus was born naturally through live birth. And why is that a problem if we, if we deny that? What are we denying? If Jesus wasn't born through the birth canal as other children are, what have we just said? Well, like the Gnostics then, we have denied the physical humanity of Christ. And that we cannot do. Now listen, we're miracle people here, right? We're Bible believers. We, we're supernaturalists. We believe in miracles, but we don't, need to we don't need to invent miracles to defend miracles. And certainly, if we go that far, then unfortunately, we've actually denied the humanity of Jesus. We don't want to do that. Okay. 
And so one of the most painful ironies of, of uh, church historical development of doctrine is that in order to defend the virgin birth, unfortunately, we raised up Mary in the Marian doctrines of the medieval age and put her next to Christ as though she ought to be adored as he. We don't want to do that. Virgin birth, yes. Birth canal, yes. Live birth, yes. Transportation birth, no. So Jesus was human. He was not an apparition. He was not a hologram. He was not a ghost. He was not a spirit being. He was not a simulation. He was not a dream, an angel, an alien, or anything else. He was fully man. And the scripture is clear about this. The scripture is clear. He had a physical body. He had extension in time and space. He had cells that multiplied and grew. He had a circulatory system, a respiratory system, a nervous system, a rational soul. He had thoughts. He had emotions. He had a consciousness. He got tired and weary. He slept. He felt pain. He bruised. He bled. He died. He was buried. He was fully human. This we confess as Bible-believing Christians. Amen? We good with that? All right. But that's only part of the story. The other part of the story is that Jesus is divine. Now let's go back to our main text again and look at this in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And so if Mary is the passive agent with regard to the conception, then the Holy Spirit is the active agency with regard to the conception of Jesus. The Bible describes this, this conception, though, in uniquely non-physical ways. Now, if somebody asks me how exactly the Holy Spirit uh, brought about this conception, I'll be the first to raise my hands and say, I don't know. Okay, there's mystery here, which means we don't understand it. There is miracle here, which is, means that it's supernatural or above the natural process. The only hint that we have about how this conception came about is in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, it says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That's as far as we get. Okay, we're not going to probe into this any further than we, than, than we get with Luke 1, 35. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Now, that, that in and of itself, though, is an interesting reference. Because if, if something overshadows you, we might think then of the, of the clouds coming over top of us uh, between the sun and the ground. Overshadowed, right? Brings down the shadow. And cloud is actually um, a theme that we see throughout the Old Testament, in particular whenever the manifest presence of God shows up or appears. Sometimes we call that an epiphany. And so in the Old Testament, for instance, you have the glory cloud that manifested in the tabernacle or in the temple. We think of the, the pillar of, of cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. Uh, we think of the clouds which covered the top of Sinai as God revealed his law. And all that we can say here about this conception as relates to the deity of Jesus Christ is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed him or her, Mary, in such a way that the Spirit of, of the Holy Spirit was, was present, giving birth, giving conception in this extraordinarily unique and only, um, only time this has ever happened. Entirely unique. The monogenes of God, the only begotten 
of the Father. And so what we, what we see here in the Scriptures is that Jesus is not merely human, but that in the Gospels and in the Epistles as well, Jesus is clearly described as having divine nature. He has two natures, his human and his divine nature. And so throughout the Gospels, uh, what we're going to see is all of these hints, all of these images of Christ being more than just merely a man. We see his pre-existence, for instance, in John 1 and in John 17, the high priestly prayer. We see Jesus' power over nature itself. He has the ability to turn the water into wine. Jesus has power over nature in his multiplication of the loaves. Jesus has power over the demons as he casts them out of those who are afflicted. Jesus has power to heal with his word or with a touch or even sometimes with a spit or with mud. Jesus has entire power over all things. He stills the storms. He walks on the seas. He is transfigured in glory. Remember Matthew chapter 17, when it's like the veil is revealed and, and the light of, of uh, glorious resplendence of, of the sun itself is beaming forth from him for his disciples to see this. And so when he is crucified, he is also raised from the dead and he ascends to sit at the Father's hand. Truly, he is of a divine Nature, He is of deity as the Father is and is the Holy Spirit. This we confess because we're Christians. One person in two natures. Now throughout all of church history, there's a number of false teachings related to this. Uh, Arianism taught that uh, Jesus had a beginning, that he was a created being. He was very powerful, but something like a, like a superhero coming in from another world. He had his beginning out there, but he came here and he has great power. But Arianism denies the deity of Christ. And there's modalism. Modalism suggests that, that God actually just changes shape or form. Sometimes he's the Father. Sometimes he's the Son. Sometimes he's the, the Holy Spirit. Uh, you may remember in the Lord of the Rings series, and The Hobbit in particular, how Bayorn, is a shapeshifter. Sometimes he looks like a man, sometimes he looks like a bear. That's modalism, that's a heresy. Now, there was docetism, that Jesus only seemed to be human. Interestingly, the first heresy is not to deny the divine nature of Christ, but to deny the human nature of Christ. The docetic error taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. He just looked like a human being, but he was actually divine. And so if we're going to be faithful to what all Christians believe, then we will receive Christ as having two natures, the divine and the human, and one person, the Son of God. Now let's go on quickly, for lack of time here this morning, also to his names, because Matthew in, in 1.18 to 25 also belabors the point of the names that are given to Christ. This too is important. This too hated by the red dragon. Okay, so we have two names here. Now, Jesus has plenty of names. He's worthy of many names and titles. In the New Testament, Jesus has all kinds of names. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He's Christ. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah, etc. But here in this text, we have two names. So let's deal with these two. The first is the name Jesus. You see this in verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we have in English the name Jesus. That comes from the Greek name, Jesus, uh, which itself is a transliteration of the Hebrew name, uh, Yehoshua, or Yeshua. The, the name literally means 
the Lord saves. It's a word that's comprised of two other words. We have the divine name, Jehovah or Yahweh, combined with the Hebrew word meaning to save. And the scriptures say that Jesus is, he's going to be named Jesus for a particular reason here because he is going to save his people from their sins. Now, th this is not the first person in the Bible to have this name, Yeshua or Yehoshua or Yeshua. It's the same name, same Hebrew name here that we see in two other characters that you already know. Joshua, for one, the successor of Moses. Remember, Joshua leads the people into the promised land. Joshua, who uh, is the warrior, the warrior leader, who's the successor of Moses. He brings him into the promised land. He's the one who, who leads God's people into the land of milk and honey. He's, he's a fighter. He's the one who has to beat back Israel's enemies in combat. So we have that Joshua, same name, exact same name. Yeshua. We also have another interesting Joshua in the book of Zechariah. Now, I wish we had time to turn here, but trust me, it's there. And if you read Zechariah chapter 3, uh, Yeshua is the high priest who has a very interesting story here. The high priest is being accused by the devil. And in Zechariah chapter 3, the devil is accusing, the devil is pointing, the devil is attacking, he's besmirching the honor of God's people. And then... Uh, this, this high priest, Yeshua or Joshua, is, is then, though he's accused of having dirty and soiled garments, yet in the sight of God he has clean robes and a new turban. And by that we are to understand the imputed righteousness of Christ in which he takes off the soiled garments of the sin stain of his people and instead he gives them of his own righteous garments. And so Jesus, who's born here, he has to have this name, Jesus. And the angel is clear. Don't make up any other name. He's, he's to be called Yeshua, the Lord saves. And taken together then with these two Old Testament names that were known to the people of God, they are to think of him as one who will defeat the enemies of God's people like Joshua, successor of Moses. He's, he's going to be one who will bring his people into the promised land, the deliverer, one who brings us into a state of salvation. And yet, he is also the Joshua who will impute to us the very righteousness that we need. He is the great high priest who justifies us. And so clearly, these names here, the name Yeshua, Joshua, the Lord saves, the Lord is our salvation, is appended to Christ because he is exactly that, our deliverer and our righteousness. And then, as you already probably noted, there's a second name given to Jesus in this text in Matthew chapter 1. We have the name Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord saves. But then in verse 23, uh, Matthew labors the point that he's going to also be called Emmanuel. Look at this in the text. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive exactly as we believe, Christians, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which Matthew supplies the interpretation here. Matthew's writing in Greek. He knows that most of his, his readers here, they don't understand Hebrew. Okay, Some of them maybe, or Aramaic. So Matthew supplies the interpretation, which means God with us. Now, Gospel Fellowship, PCA, you are uniquely equipped to understand this name. Why? Because we spent a year in the book of Isaiah together, right? And so we can roughly recall, can't we, the historical setting of this prophecy. You remember, of course, in the book of Isaiah, there's two great enemies 
of the people of God. There is Assyria who attacks in 722 BC and later Babylon in 586 BC. And you remember as Isaiah's unenviable role to warn the people of both attacks. And early on in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 7, chapter 8, and following as the power, the Syrian nation is rising, there is an attempt to ward off Assyria by uniting together, in those days, veritably three nations of Syria, Israel in the north, and Judah in the south. Okay, remember Israel and Judah being split after Solomon's reign. And as it goes, Syria and Israel in the north are going to try to force Judah to fight, help them fight off Assyria. That's the historical context. And in the Emmanuel prophecy, this name is given to Isaiah as a reminder and as a prophecy. We debated even back then when we preached a sermon on this text, whether this was a double fulfilled prophecy, whether it had a fulfillment in Isaiah's day or if it was only looking forward to Christ. Either way, we decided, though, that this, this prophecy has its ultimate fulfillment in the Deliverer himself. When God himself steps onto the scene of history to provide our deliverance for us, then the Emmanuel prophecy will finally be true, God with us. And this, Matthew says, is now fulfilled in the birth of Christ. God is with us. Um, he is with us. He stands beside us. He is among us. He is here. He is our deliverer. And so it is only the Bible-believing Christian who can say, God is with us. We are those who have the Messiah, deliverer Christ, the God-man. We are those who can say that our God is with us. How is he with us? He is with us in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We are not agnostics who say that God is beyond us. We are not pantheists that say that God is within us because everything is God. We are, we are not enlightenment, humanistic, rationalists that say that God is beneath us and we're better than that now. What are we? We are Christians. And we therefore say that our God is with us. How is he with us? He is with us in Christ. He is with us to save on the cross. He is with us as our deliverer from temptation. He is the one who is tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, Hebrews 4.15. He is with us redemptively to reconcile us to the Father. He is with us now as a friend and guardian and brother and king. He is with us even now in the heavenly places where he sits at the right hand of God to intercede for the saints. He is with you there. And so in this incredible story that we know so well, we know the story. We've known it since we were children. We see clearly laid before us the natures of Christ, both his human nature and his divine nature, as well as his glorious, worthy, exalted names, Yeshua, the Lord saves, and Emmanuel, God is with us. No wonder that that the red dragon hates this story. All the more reason for us to love it. Hi everybody, my name is Rob and I am a deacon at Gospel Fellowship PCA. I'm also the sound engineer, the camera guy, and the podcast manager. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. Please come visit us in person. Gospel Fellowship is a Bible-believing church 
just north of Pittsburgh, and you can find us at gospelfellowshippca.org. See you next time.